Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. And this is the podcast that brings you the stories of the people going to extraordinary lengths and doing incredible and inspiring things to save nature, wildlife and the environment. And the person that I'm speaking to today definitely counts as one of those. Sean Heinrichs is an Emmy Award winning cinematographer and photographer and an underwater diver and undercover journalist. Sean made the transition from a career in the finance industry to becoming a champion for our oceans and their wildlife, and since then has been part of some incredible conservation successes, not least of which the adding of manta rays to the list of species protected under the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species. His photos and videos have been shared in newspapers and media around the world, reaching millions of people. And he's worked with communities in countries like Indonesia, where in one village he helped to bring about a reduction in the hunting of manta rays by 97% in just three years. In the course of this conversation, we cover how he fell in love with ocean wildlife growing up in South Africa. We talk about that transition from the world of finance to a career as an underwater photographer and undercover journalist. And we talk about diet and the role that that plays, not only in health, but also in conservation. We touch on the issue of depression. And Sean shares how he keeps his mind and body healthy for such a taxing, uh, for such, for such a taxing purpose and daily routine. We, he also talks us through the incredible underwater fashion shoots combining dancers with species like whale sharks in unique underwater choreographed videos. And he shares the amazing story of an intimate encounter with a baby humpback whale. And there's so much more in this episode as well. Remember that you can subscribe to the Wild Voices Project podcast in either iTunes or Stitcher. And if you've got the time, I'd be so grateful if you're able to leave us a review. And don't forget that the Wild Voices Project podcast is part of an international project called Wild Voices Media, bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring young conservationists. You can find out more about the Wild Voices Project podcast at wildvoicesproject.org and you can follow us on Twitter at wildvoicesproj and you can find out more about the global project at wild-voices.org. Now let's dive into this incredible episode. Then let's get started and welcome to the Wild Voices Project podcast. Um, Sean, thanks very much for for coming on the podcast. And I'm going to start where I often start with people, which is by asking you about where your connection to wildlife and the outdoors came from. And I know that you grew up in South Africa and you've, you've said that you spent a lot of time watching the rich wildlife of the ocean. So I wanted to ask how that made you feel and whether you've got a particular memory of ocean wildlife from that time that's special to you. So uh, I think your question goes back to just right back at my, my childhood days. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think for me, it, it, a lot of the connection that people talk about is 
something that maybe they developed over time. And I think there's another category of people who felt it right from the very inception, right at the beginning of their life. And for me, my, my connection with all animals and nature was, I think, very, it's almost innate to my being, my very self. Um, it started even with my, 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 my pets where I, I was more comfortable with my dogs playing on the ground and, and eating, eating food next to them on the floor than I was sitting at a table. I always felt this really deep sense of connection with nature. And then with growing up in South Africa, right on the wild coast, you had some of the most incredible wildlife pouring up that coast during the annual migration of the sardines. And so I, I had this perception of the oceans with sort of endless bounty pouring forth from both the sky and the water, sardines so thick that they would bubble up on the beaches and fishermen would, would actually scoop them up in buckets while droves of sharks and dolphins were compiling in. And, and in the background, you had these mighty humpback whales leaping in the air. And that, to me, was what the oceans represented. And I think it left an indelible mark in my soul of some of the most um, – incredible abundance and beauty that nature has to offer yeah and that sounds pretty um you know it's kind of hard for me probably partly because i live in the uk and we maybe don't have the same kind of ocean wildlife that you do in south africa although we do have some pretty amazing ocean wildlife but it sounds to me pretty almost unbelievable that there was that sort of bounty and abundance of wildlife in the oceans when you were growing up down there Pretty phenomenal. I mean, it's 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 one of the most special, you know, it's, it's, in, a, it's in a different category of abundance. But it, the truth be told, um, the coasts of California used to have annual sardine migrations um, in the, you know, past Oman and, and in the, in the um, uh, all the oceans, we used to have volumes of marine life and densities that may have not necessarily rivaled, but came close to that. And, you know, through, you know, hundreds and if not thousands of years of exploitation, there's sort of the last vestiges that exist in these pockets around the oceans. They're, they're the flashback, they're the, the shadows of the past. And um, it's, it's not that those were particularly unique places, it's just that's all that's left. And yeah. so now we're in that scenario, which is, what's left and can we protect what's left? And it's very difficult because there's not much time at all. Mm. And if we, if we wait too long, there will be none of it. Yeah, when I was speaking to Cassandra and John for one of my recent podcasts about the, about the Ross Sea, um, I spoke to them about the, the huge change since the 1950s or 60s in the proportion of the world's oceans that are Overexploited, which has gone from being a few pockets around the coasts of most continents to almost all the entire oceans now being exploited today, and um, that brings there's, us on. There's to over seventy thousand tracked commercial fishing, high seas commercial fishing vessels that are plying the oceans each and every single day. And if you consider, for example, a factory longliner, it can put upwards of hundred miles of longline out, and that's a single line that tails out the back of the vessel that has thousands upon thousands of hooks, each of them baited, right? And right. you know, imagine that and you say a single nation like Taiwan has 2,000 registered factory longliners combined enough longline to wrap around the equator eight times, literally wrap around the planet eight times, mm. and that's only the fourth largest commercial fishing nation. So you combine all the top 20 and – 
the grid that now lattice of nets and lines and hooks, there's nowhere for the sharks, rays, tuna, you name it. The species have nowhere to go. And we are literally strip mining the oceans of every last viable fish species. Well, you've, you've almost answered one of my very next questions, which was to ask you, in your own words, what impact we've had on the oceans and in particular on rays and sharks. And I remember, maybe it was from one of the interviews you did, or maybe it's from Racing, Racing Extinction, the film, this incredible figure that for shark fin soup, 250,000 sharks a day are being taken out of the oceans. Conservatively, yes. Conservatively. Yeah. Which is pretty hard to imagine, you know, like... If it if you know what is the what is the true toll? Well, we don't actually know. You know, I was in one port in Japan where they were landing three million sharks a year in a single port. That's yeah. just one port, and you know, it wasn't just the country's totals. It was one landing site, and the the amount of sharks that don't come in, the ones that are just finned and thrown overboard, the the higher estimates say upwards of two hundred and fifty million sharks a year. You know, the 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 accepted number is around 70 to 100 million sharks a year, but the upward figure is up to the potential of 250 million, which would mean um, actually about 600,000 sharks a day. Wow. And some of, the, some of the photos that you've taken and that are shown in the Racing Extinction film as well of just these, just one, I don't know what you'd call it, port or kind of, you know, these photos of these yards where there's just fin upon fin upon fin thousands and thousands of fins just kind of i mean you know i've been an environmentalist quote unquote since the age of six or seven you know i've cared about rainforest destruction and all of these issues but some of those photos took my breath away and i i just hadn't really clocked this you know i've known the headlines and the stories before but to see the scale with my own eyes i suppose really tells the story of the power of an image yeah, I mean, for me, uh, you know, some of those I call the, the, the face of the 100 million. Mm. And, you know, because people would often question, like, is it really that many? And I was trying to explain to people that I can't prove it. But from what I see, it feels it feels like, in fact, it is that bad. And then um, when I finally was able to get behind undercover, for example, in Japan and Taiwan, and show the 10,000 fins and the 7,000 sharks in a single frame, um, it put a face on that number and it brought home the fact that, oh my God, this actually could be true. Yeah. It, yeah. it took my breath away. I couldn't believe what I was actually witnessing myself. It was, it was almost hard to imagine that we, in such a single frame, you could be causing such destruction. Mm, yeah. I, I, so I want to talk about this a little bit more, but I want to re- rewind slightly and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but before you became involved in underwater photography and ocean conservation, you were working in uh, technology in the finance industry. And I wondered what it was that made you decide to give up that career and turn all your energy, your incredible energy and focus to saving the oceans. It's, that's a that's an interesting question, and I think it's one that, in, at some point in each of our lives, we all have to come face to face with. I often talk about your sort of where's your your where do you find the greatness in your life? Where do you find that native genius? Where do you find that place where you belong? And 
you know, there's a lot of folks that spend a lot of energy and time in their lives doing things that they're really good at and they're, they're well compensated for, but they're not entirely passionate about. And I call that, that's a day job. Um, and then there's other things that you're really, really passionate at, but, but you're not all that good at, and that's a hobby. But somewhere in there is the place, that sweet spot where your passion, your great passion and what you really, your talent, your great talents converge. And, and that's, that's your, that is your purpose. That's where you need to really focus your energy. And for me, um, it was interesting because I was really good at, in the finance space and in, in building business. And I threw a lot of energy at it, but I was never passionate about it. Yeah. And uh, along my journey, I had the opportunity through diving and through travel, to, especially in Southeast Asia, to reconnect with that childhood passion for nature and the oceans. And what I witnessed now was something very different. Instead of these oceans pouring with life, with abundance that's almost beyond description, they were empty seas and dilapidated reefs and the sharks were gone and the rays were gone and, and, and the fish that were once pouring over the reefs were just you know, a, sheer, a mere shadow of what they once were before. And in just my short life, I was witnessing the very reefs that I had seen at once abundant now completely fall into, into disrepair. And I have a philosophy that, you know, when you, when you uncover something so important as this, which is, in this case, the, the death of our, our planet's life support system, the oceans, you, you have a duty to do something about it. And it was impossible for me with this knowledge to continue forward in my current trajectory because, yeah, I would amass, continue to amass wealth and I would have, you know, live the American dream and all those things. But in the end the true wealth or natural wealth, I was watching that disappear before my very eyes. And the thing that I was most passionate about, uh, there would be nothing left. So it wasn't really as much of a choice as I had no choice. I needed to do something about it. And that meant basically letting go of a, a lucrative career and a, a, sorry about this. That's okay. I'm not sure what's causing that. Um, letting go of a lucrative career and letting go of something so important uh, financially and pursuing something that really mattered in the long run, which was safeguarding the, the life support system of our planet. Yeah. And um, I don't want to get too hung up on the timeline or the details, but I am interested in whether you just, I mean, did you literally just dive from one to the other? Did you take an immediate step and leave your, leave your job in the finance sector and go straight into into sure. ocean conservation and photography and had you done underwater photography before for example great question uh my my background in in filmmaking and photography was was actually quite minimal i had you know as a hobbyist doing some terrestrial photography you know with film cameras and stuff i had some background in that but really I had no formal training whatsoever. I'd never taken a class in journalism or photography or filmmaking. I had never attended a seminar. I, you know, I'd never had any type exposure. And what I did was before I made the jump, I started joining forums and self-teaching my, myself the necessary, necessary skills to start communicating. And the, I didn't choose photography and filmmaking um, for initially for the, the fact that I was necessarily in love with it, but more for the fact that it gave me a creative method to tell a story. And when you use, when you show images and you tell stories, 
but you condense what would take thousands of words and you can in just a moment communicate that information in a much more profound and powerful manner. And that was sort of the first impetus. But the other part that came around was as a small child, I was really into painting and drawing. And I, you know, through business and through sports and all that, I'd sort of lost connection with that, that creative pursuit. And through the sort of what was a very conservation-driven initiative using imagery to tell stories, I reconnected with that creative self. And that storyteller and that artist that was a child within me sort of started to flourish again. And the, the, the act of creating images and the act of building stories with film became a passion unto itself. And the outlet, which was the conservation uh, aspect, became the, the primary purpose for it. So it was within myself that artist was able to get reborn and I was able to realize the purpose, which was to change, to inspire people to act and make a difference and preserve. That became the outlet. And so it really married two really important parts of my, my, myself into that pursuit. And that required some time. And so my, my art and my, my conservation work developed as I was beginning to transition out of the, the business space. And it took a few years, and then it was more than a decade ago that I completely finally let go of that space and 100% was able to focus on the film, photography, and conservation uh, work that I do now. Mm. So it was by, that, that's really powerful. And it, so it was by giving yourself permission to pursue that purpose or even that duty to protect the oceans that you also reconnected with that other passion uh, that was kind of a byproduct in a way of your creative and artistic flair um yes and i'm really interested in so so i'm going to put in the show notes links to your videos and your photos and the conservation work that you've done I, i'm really interested in hearing a little bit in your own words the story of your underwater fashion shoots and i'm particularly interested obviously in manta's last dance um, yes and i suppose i'm interested in two elements of that first the for the photographers that I know listen to this podcast, how you achieve an underwater shoot like that. And I know that it <laughs> might look like there's just you and the you and the model or you and the dancer, but actually it's a bit more complicated that than that. Yes. And then secondly also the kind of conservation impact that those photos and videos have had. Yeah. No, that's a that's a really great topic and one that speaks to a lot of my uh, artistic development and some of the evolution in my conservation ethic. One of the things that I had learned along my journey was some of the old school ways of trying to achieve conservation with communications wasn't getting the job done, period. I, I started with the, wow, share the beauty and everyone will fall in love the way I did. And so my initial forays were films and imagery all about natural history. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm so passionate about this. I can't imagine someone doesn't see this and they want to protect it. And what happened, though, is, you know, I shared that imagery. I started to get um, distribution on it. But nothing changed. Nobody changed their behaviors. And the world continued to consume. And even most of the people that I knew in my, my community continued to consume and do the very behaviors that were leading to the demise of species and habitats in the oceans. So I realized I've got to do something deeper. And that's when my investigative and undercover work began. And it took me way into the depths of triad and mafia-driven operations from South America, Central America, Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific to some of the most derelict and scary places I'd ever been in the world 
often myself alone toting a camera, documenting some of the most egregious acts of human barbaric destruction you can imagine and cruelty. And that imagery I then shared with the world. And, and uh, interestingly enough, it, it propelled a lot of my career in, in journalism and BBC and National Geographic, CNN, just to name a few, even even mainstream journals like Wired and stuff carried my stories. And the imagery you know, went far and wide, reaching hundreds of millions of people, showing what we were doing to the oceans. And I thought, wow, you know, this wake up call is going to it's going to change everything. And it didn't. A lot of people saw it and then they wanted to forget it. And I couldn't figure out how could they not, with the knowing that I had to have and shared, how could they not be compelled to act? And why aren't we seeing a revolution? And it was that point where I sort of had to go through a personal transformation of my own. I'd seen, you know, I'd spent almost a decade at that point in some of the, the darkest and most depressing work I could ever imagine documenting this destruction. And I had to sort of go through a, a dark period and a reemergence and come to the realization that it came down to one thing. I was trying to fight. And, you know, when you take violence with violence, and, and we saw, I think Mandela speaks about this, you, you will never win. You know, you have to basically use love to overcome violence. And what had happened is that I had lost a lot of that love inside of myself through witnessing such destruction but also the mere fact that the people that I was trying to reach, they had no connection. They didn't have the love and passion that I did. So when I sounded the alarm bell, they had no impetus to act. You know, when you talk about the spotted owl in some forest in Oregon, in the US, for example, and it's losing its habitat, well, if no one cares about the spotted owl, why do they care if it's losing its habitat? Mm. But if someone's trying to kick in your door, murder your family, and rob your home, you're gonna fight with your life. Yeah. You're going to stand up and by all every means possible defend what is yours and, and what you care about. And I realized I needed people to feel the way I did. And the only way that I could do that was to have them fall in love again. And that's when the emergence of sort of the third phase of my practice came into being, which was the human connection work. I needed to take the average person, the 99%, the ones that never stuck their head below the oceans, they weren't technical scuba divers or anything like that, and I needed to create stories and imagery that showed humans vulnerable, exposed, and connected with marine life in a way that they'd never seen, and also do it in a way that was so surreal and almost shocking that it, it could permeate and access mainstream culture, pop culture, fashion culture, things that don't fall within your traditional conservation-oriented media outlets. And that was the birthplace for my work with the whale sharks. And then particularly what you're referring to was Manta's Last Dance, which was a, a film I did in preparation for the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species in 2013. Mm. And that film showed uh, one of my closest creative partners, Hannah Frazier, she's known as Hannah Mermaid, probably the most accomplished underwater performer in the world, in my mind she is, um, dancing at the bottom of the ocean at midnight, completely without any type of gear, um, bolted down to the ocean floor with 50 pounds of weight, dancing with a manta ray. And the imagery was the first of its kind. It was some of the most complex I'd ever captured. And I'll get back into the story of the work to capture it. Mm. But it, it, for mainstream press, I had to basically sign waivers that said this wasn't computer graphics. 
And at first I wasn't getting a pickup because everyone thought this was animation. And I was like, no, this is very real. Because it and looks incredible. It looks surreal. But as you say, it is very much real. And what the idea was is that I wanted to stir that fairy tale connection, that, that heart space for these animals. And now why? Well, when I was going, you know, manta rays are a species that's very close to me. They're harmless. They have no stinger. They have no teeth. They grow to 18 feet across. They're incredibly intelligent, largest brain to body mass ratio of any shark array, social, curious, incredible, gentle animals, yet the emergence of a trade in China for their gills for a pseudo-medicinal tonic was leading to their demise. And when you consider that most manta populations are just a few hundred distributed across the world, within a few short years, you could eradicate entire populations around the world. So we had very little time. And the only way to prevent trade is uh, there, there's an existing treaty called the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, CITES. And it's a UN body of about 180, depending on the year, nations, which is the vast majority of the world's nations, that sign treaties to protect or regulate the trade in, in threatened species. And these are binding provisions. And you're, if you're a member of that treaty, you are obligated to stand by it. And if not, there will be sanctions. And so this is the forum, and it meets every three years. So in 2013, we had an opportunity to get this animal, manta ray, on the floor and have it potentially get listed. So a four-year project leading up to that was initiated to basically document everything that was happening from trade to exploitation to fisheries to tourism and establish a very strong case for their conservation. So now fast forward to January 2013 and word comes out that uh, we don't have a chance at CITES and the reason being is that everyone thinks it's a killer stingray that killed Steve Irwin. And my jaw hit the floor. I was like, are you kidding me? And, and what you're trying to do is get the, the manta ray added to the list of protected species, right? There's, there's appendices, which one, two, and three, which highly regulate the trade in these animals. And effectively, unless there's uh, proof that you can trade sustainably, you're blocking the trade, which has a huge impact on the desire to hunt them. Mm. And unfortunately, most of the folks that, that are delegates from these nations aren't scientists aren't conservationists, they're bureaucrats that are paid to represent the interests of their country and their trade. So they're usually lobbying to protect things, to prevent conservation. So added to that layer was the fact that nobody actually knew what a manta ray was. And they actually feared it as a killer stingray, so why the heck would you protect it? And so suddenly I had this, you know, two months before the convention, we have this uphill battle. And sort of leveraging work I'd recently done with whale sharks in a fashion shoot, the idea came about, well, why don't we create a whole new vision of these animals? And that required that we, again, strip away all the technical gear and make a human connection with them. And that's where the idea of this dance with the manta ray was birthed. However, to do a shoot of this nature, and this is getting into a bit of the technical side, is not an easy undertaking. We're talking about cold water in, in Fahrenheit, low 70s, so in, you know, in centigrade, we're talking about, you know, maybe, maybe 20 degrees, 21 degrees. Yeah. Now, that's fine if you're in a warm wetsuit, but can you imagine spending hours and hours on the ocean floor, you know, with maybe just, just, just sort of really a smock, right? It's and part of what makes it look like it might not be real, yeah. It's incredible. So we spent five nights 
three hours in a row at, you know, from like 10 PM till 1 AM filming in these cold conditions. And Hannah had to basically go down at the bottom of the ocean and we would take a safety diver. We'd have two safety divers. We'd have an air diver. We had a backup camera. We had a tech support, a dive guide. We had a team of about eight people between the lighting, the support and everything for that one set of images. And every two minutes, she would reach out and we would supply her air by a safety diver. And we, we did this for three hours in a row. So could you imagine doing breath holds at, at 10 to 12 meters for three hours in a row in 20 to 21, 21 degree centigrade water again and again and again uh, was some of the most exhausting work you could ever imagine in the Pacific winter, which means swells coming in that would literally smash you against the rocks under even at that depth and do this five nights in a row. When we would come up uh, from the chute, uh, Hannah would be completely hypothermic and we'd immerse her in a hot water or warm hot water bucket of water until her shivering would fi finally stop and she could actually regain her, her composure. And it, we did this again and again. And at one point we were in a scenario where we were filming and a massive swell came in and she was in a, a different outfit, a wedding dress. And the dress came over her head right when she was reaching for her air at the end of her breath hold. So two minutes in, it goes over her head and she gets completely entangled, bolted to the ocean floor with over 20 kilos of lead. And suddenly she has no air. And uh, this is a, a rocky terrain with viper eels wrapping around her ankle. And so we rushed in and it was everything we could do to basically free her from that and get the air to her. And, you know, her eyes were wide open. You know, she was almost in shock. We get her resituated and then she signals to me and I'm like, okay, what's up? And she's like, basically saying, did we get the shot? And I'm like, well, almost, but it's, it's time to go up. And I was blown away. She's like, no. I'm like, what do you mean no? And she goes, she does the signal, the rolling hand signal that we shoot again. And I'm like, you want to shoot again? Oh, man. And we filmed again for another hour. So when you, when you even contemplate the type of work that we do with these creative shoots, um, I don't know anybody else in the world that does anything like these. They're, the, the complexity and the skills are beyond. They push my natural history, human behavior, technical you know, environmental knowledge to the very brink. And then you have to have an entire team that's in sync from safety to technical to creative to make something like that happen. And, you know, this, the Mantis Last Dance was shot in 2013. And we thought, well, after this, you know, everyone's going to rush in and try to create sort of replicas. And nobody's even, ever even attempted it because in all, honestly, it was one of the most challenging things I'd ever done. And I think when people even try to start experimenting with it, they realize how far beyond the realm of reasonable shooting something like this is. And sometimes people say, how far would you go to save a species? And I point to a film like this and I go that far. And if you look at the behind the scenes and you realize how far that is, it's pretty damn far. And, and you were successful, right, as well, that year manta rays were added to the appendix. Yeah, it was actually a mind-blowing success. We put the film out and the, and the imagery out, and within a week, it was front pages on on countries around the world. And a lot of these, most of these were CITES-registered countries. And so suddenly, manta rays were a hot topic, whereas before they weren't, weren't even on the, the spoken agenda. Mm. And we took an inflatable manta ray that 
seven meter across giant inflatable manta ray and we hosted a reception right on the CITES floor to 300 delegates and we showed the film right there on the right there on the main menu and I just remember the, the, the room went silent and I could see tears in people's eyes and then there was a standing ovation at the end of the film and then throughout the rest of the convention you know one by one delegates would come up to me and say don't worry your mantas are safe with me and this was in the face of literally nations like Japan and China walking around with briefcases of money, trying to basically convince people, buying votes. And even despite the fact that we were competing with wealth and greed and massive bureaucracy and political influence, we connected with people's hearts in a way that that could not. And, and in the end, we had a landslide voting victory and, and one of the most successful first time initiations in the history for a marine species to actually bring it forward in the first CITES time that it's first time it comes to the convention and have a landslide victory. And for me, that was a testament to the power of, you know, love, communication and art in drive, helping to drive these important conservation successes. Mm. I thought it was really interesting that you talked about the different ways in which the these underwater fashion shoots push your different limits and that your your undercover work in the past as well pushes limits, but different limits. But I suppose what you were saying before was that you felt like the the darkness that you were seeing through those through that undercover work, despite sometimes it bringing conservation successes. So, for example, the dramatic decline in the popularity of shark fin soup in in parts of Asia, nonetheless, was having too much of a personal impact on you. And you've spoken in other interviews about suffering with depression yeah. and I can empathize with that I'm someone who suffered from depression as well um, so it's really interesting that you flip that thing of pushing your limits to being in a more creative and a more positive way that's filled with love and connection I think you're you're hitting on something really important which is it, it's sort of like you need to first sec secure your breathing mask before the passenger next to you yeah yeah. And I think a lot of people who sort of throw themselves headlong into causes, whether it be social or environmental causes, they're, they're thinking that they're going to somehow save themselves via that process. Mm -hmm. And what inevitably happens is you end up in just another train wreck scenario where you're overwhelmed, you're depressed, and you're suffering again. And for me, it was the fact that I was trying to save myself through my work instead of realizing that I needed to bring the most healthy, inspired, compassionate yeah, empathetic version of myself to my work. And it was that dark space that I went to and then the emergence from in that dark space that I, I kind of was reborn. And I realized that, you know, I need to care for myself. I need to, you know, love myself and be compassionate with myself. And then through that, I can bring that to my cause and I can bring that to the purpose that is so important to me. And it's a much healthier view. And one of the ways that I did that was my love of art, and the fact that I was able to reconnect with something that was so important to me as a child and so inspiring to me and then make that core to everything that I did. And now it's inseparable. The idea of doing conservation without art makes no sense to me. And the idea of doing art without conservation makes no sense to me. The, the two are, are inextricably joined and they form what is sort of the core purpose, but also the, my special sauce, the thing that makes me tick. And it's where I, I, I can bring the most value in the work that I do. So I'm incredibly fortunate because, you know, I think there's no, you know, they talk about what drives people in, in, in their lives and there's nothing more profound than having just 
absolute clarity on your purpose because on the hard days, it gets you up. On the great days, it carries you and buoys you. And, you know, I wake up every single day and I know exactly what I need to be doing. And I think that's a very rare thing in this day and age, but it's also something I'm incredibly grateful for to find that passion and to be able to connect that with, with, with my creativity is, is more valuable than you could never buy anything like that. There's no, there's nothing you could purchase. There's nothing someone could give you that even comes close to that in your life. Oh yeah. Yeah. I hear that. I mean, you've kind of answered my, my question, but I was going to say, um, do you have any practices in particular that keep your body and your mind in good health Uh, for you? Is it just having the chance to practice your art and explore your creativity? I'm a huge believer in mind, body, spirit. And I think for that, in order, we are, you know, we're, we're physical beings in, and, uh, but with, with spirits that can travel endlessly. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but we happen to be, you know, our, our, we reside on a physical plane, at least for part of our existence. And I can get into my esoteric philosophies around that. But generally speaking, I, I try to be as healthy as I can on all fronts, which means I eat very healthily. I'm, I eat primarily a plant-based diet. Um, alcohol is not a big part of my life. You know, I might have a sip here and there, but I don't want it to slow me down. I don't want to cloud, cloud my clarity. You know, I don't smoke. I don't use anything. It's like I try to keep my body as healthy as I can. I practice yoga. I've been practicing yoga for over 20 years. And, yeah, you know, I've, back in my days, I was an extreme athlete, and I've broken my back twice. I've broken 38 bones. I've wow. had two heart procedures. I've had dengue, West Nile, you know, you go down the list of tropical things that I've picked up along the way when you've had to like work in these areas. And despite all of that, you know, I can work long days. I can, I can go out and ride my bike for two hours. I can do two hours of yoga and I can, I can, you know, carry hundred pounds of bags on my back and get the work done. So a lot of that comes down to feeling and being healthy and living healthy. And that, you, you know, if you're filling your, your body with, you know, toxic chemicals, if you're filling your body with a lot of animal products that are, are, are clogging your system, none of that's going to work very well. And so yeah. I think it's all of the system coming together and, and treating, you know, you don't put bad fuel into a sports car and expect it to run well. But if you want to operate, and that, you know, maybe it's a bad analogy, but if you want to operate as a high performance um, vehicle, you need to treat it as such. And so I think the area I suffer the most on, honestly, is I don't sleep enough. Mm-hmm. And that's a function of the fact that I'm, I've just t- I've taken on so much, but I can never take on enough given what needs to be done. And so it's, 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 a, con- it's a constant struggle between how much can I give and honestly, when do I break? Yeah. Well, th- this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm really interested to hear you say all that. I've been vegetarian for sort of 10, 11 years, something like that. But I've recently watched Cowspiracy and What the Health. And man, it tipped like immediately in the past couple of months, like it immediately tipped me over into going completely, completely plant-based in terms of my diet. And that not only has links to my own health, but also links directly back to all the environmental and conservation issues that I care about, whether it's the oceans or climate change or deforestation or a whole long list of things. So... Yeah, um, it's a it's yeah. a tough topic. It's a it's a it's a you know I talk about three primary things and there's more, but three of them that really hit people, which are and they all fall into the forms of religion for me. And one is religion, two is politics, and three is diet. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's 
generally speaking, it's some, it's a conversation that an otherwise reasonable person can hold a completely unreasonable position. And even in the face of the facts that they know to be counter. And because there's, there's things that we are culturally imbued with and food is so cultural as is your upbringing with religion and politics. And so people treat their diet as a religion and any affront to their diet is considered a personal attack and something that they are no longer going to consider rationally. And so I have had to come face to face with that in my life and realize that there's a lot of stories that I've told myself because I am very culturally tied to what I eat. And breaking those ties is a very painful and destructive process, but in the end, a very enlightening and healthy process. And one of those stories is that you need animal products to be healthy. Yeah, and yeah. And there's a new film that just came out that has – it's coming out. It's, it's, I, it was made by Louis Sahoyas, who is the director of Racing Extinction mm-hmm. that I worked with Louis on. It's called Game Changers. Oh, yeah. I just saw the trailer for that like two days ago. Man, that's exciting. Louis has done an amazing job. It is a phenomenal film. And if you watch that film, you suddenly understand why the world's strongest man, one of the top, some of the top women performers, top cyclist, the world's top arm wrestler, some of the top Navy SEALs are all vegan, and some of the top football players are all vegan. And But Louis uses the term plant-based diet because there's a lot of um, – there's a lot of baggage with the word vegan, right? Yeah, it's because it's, a, you're, it's an attack on culture by many people's words. Mm. And so really it's just plant-based diet is what it, is, it simply is. And, you know, I've been vegetarian for many years, like you described. And, but dairy, honestly, mainly just eggs and cheese. I didn't even drink milk anymore. Was still, you know, sort of cornerstone to a lot of my diet. And mm-hmm. understanding how dairy and cheese are very concentrated versions of animal protein in this is if not even more than meat and realizing that the impact on my system my personal system was significant and for me that wasn't enough yet because you know i've been a bit of I have a bit of a martyr personality like i can take it um but then also understanding the incredible cruelty that is part of the dairy industry the fact that in order to have milk you need pregnant cows and that means you have to have baby cows and you don't need a bunch of baby male cows so either you're you're disposing of them or you're supporting the veal industry which is the consumption of baby cows Mm. um and chicken farming is you know another really disgusting practice that involves the fact that you need a bunch of female chickens to lay eggs you don't need a bunch of male chickens so every other chicken that comes out is dropped into a little vat and drowned or crushed or boiled or whatever. And so, you know, you're talking about apocalyptic genocide on species just for me to have my eggs and milk or cheese. And am I okay with that? And so I'm not, I'm honestly not okay with that. I've seen enough cruelty and destruction to say that if, if, if I don't need something to die for me to thrive, then so be it. And I'm not even thrive, but potentially be even less healthy than you could be on a diet that doesn't involve that. Absolutely. And, but for me, that was, I was willing to be unhealthy to get my work done, but I came to the realization that, that I'm not okay with it from that reason alone. And then when yeah. you get to the healthy aspect of it, it's like, well, then there's no even justification for it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I don't want to get up on the pulpit and preach, but for people listening, my answer to them is this. Do, in your life, find the truth and decide if you're okay with the truth, but don't hide from the truth. Which means when you're eating in your diet, 
whether it be vegetarian, plant—I mean, plant-based entirely, meat-based, or whatever—know where your food comes from. Know what the consequences are in producing that food, which means growing it, raising it, slaughtering it, transporting it—all those things. Then make a decision: Are you okay with that? Truly, are you okay with it? In in and separated from any cultural messaging that you've been raised with. Are you as a person in your heart okay with it? And if you're okay with it, then yeah, continue what you're doing. But if you're not okay with it, give yourself permission to make changes in your life because you shouldn't be living a life that you're not okay with. That is within your hands. And so for me, I'm not okay with it. Does that mean everyone around me is feels the same way? No, that doesn't mean that. And I'm not going to beat them over the head because I have a large fossil fuel footprint for my travel and a lot of people aren't okay with that. So, but I do believe that if we all made the decisions to really understand the impacts of our consumption, our disposable and our energy usage and really understand that and then made conscious decisions on what we were okay with and what we weren't and made the changes on the things we weren't okay with, there would be so much improvement on the planet on so many different levels. I use the term and this is, and it's not my term, but there's, there's sort of the accidental self and the intentional self. Mm -hmm. And the accidental self is a person that runs around with a lot of beliefs and programs that were installed and imbued upon us that we don't even know where they came from, but that they drive our daily behaviors and decisions. The intentional self is the one that has looked at each and every one of those things and decided the ones that they really truly agree with and the ones that they don't, and now act and believe based on the intention, not on the accident. And so in my life, I'm trying to spend as much time as I can being the intentional self and not the accidental self. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I took us off on a slightly, a very interesting, but a little bit of a detour there. Um, it's not, it's the, it is honestly the basis by which we are struggling on this planet and the reason why we are not treating animals, other people and habitats the way they need to be because it's the very conversation that you're having right now. Well, it, it brings me on to what was gonna be my next question actually, which links to this thing of connecting with people's hearts and um love but also i suppose showing them showing them or helping them to see i don't know i'm uh, i'll let you put it in your own words in a minute a different way which is to ask you about your work with communities and um as someone who's lived in indonesia for a year i, I love indonesia i've got a a real passion for that country and its wildlife and its wonderful people um i was really interested in one of your films I'm going to forget the name of the village now, but the village where they were dependent Lemecare. on... Yeah, thank you. Yeah, where they were dependent yes. on manta rays. And I was going to ask you to say a little bit about your work with the community there. Yeah, I think that's a, um, an interesting uh, point which you raise, which is, okay, let's get down to the ground. Let's talk about the people on the front lines that, that don't necessarily have the options that we were just discussing in terms of diet and all those things in such an obvious manner. And also talk about the heart of culture. So in Indonesia, there's a village called Lemakara, and this is a 400-year-old village, and the entire village was founded on hunting large marine life. It started with baleen whales and then migrated to other marine life, one of the key ones being manta rays. Now, what has happened, though, is 400 years of highly selective hunting, which meant sail and oar, wooden boats, hunting for weeks to catch, you know, one of these animals. And so over, you know, hundreds of years, the population was barely affected. Then what happened 20 years ago is commercial interest from China came in and said, hey, we want the gills and we want the fins and we want this. And what was a sort of a artisanal effort 
transformed almost overnight into a full-on commercial hunt. And as a result, the population of mantas and whale sharks and other animals in that region plummeted. And when I got to the community, it was, it was in a downward spiral and the, the hunting was, you know, at an all-time peak. And, you know, you, you talk about a community that's not just one speck on the planet. They were at the junction point for one of the largest migratory species corridors in all the oceans. Whales, dolphins, sharks, mantas, everything were pouring through this. So they weren't just affecting their local waters. They were affecting a massive region. And for some reason, other organizations had come and looked at this village and nobody had ever bothered. And in the end, no one had said, the word was, you're not going to change them. How can you turn around 400 years of hunting and 20 years of mass commercial exploitation, especially when you don't have a wallet not big enough to buy them out entirely? So we took our message to this community and we basically presented, um, you saw this in Racing Extinction, we, we yeah. filmed there, we took their <coughs> kids in the water and we showed them a vision of a whole new future, one where instead of destroying their marine life, they could actually profit from and also connect with it in a whole different way. And I just remember watching these mighty hunters, sort of the, the, the sentinels in their communities, staring with big eyes as these manta rays were dancing on the seven meter, nine meter screen in their village with music pouring forth. And they, they suddenly had this view of these animals that weren't just these sort of these um, dangerous fish that they were driving a spear into, but they were actually intelligent, connected creatures. And Within that moment, it was sort of like the, the story of the Grinch where his heart grew 1,000%. Something sparked inside these people. A transformation began. And that process wasn't just enough. That was the sort of the, okay, we, need, we have a different view. I've opened your heart. Now I need to speak to the other part, which is the economics and your lifestyle. We need to transform the way you do business and the way you, you the economics of your community. And so we launched an entire community-based transformation project within that community and over three years introduced entirely new sustainable fisheries industries and tourism and research industries. And as a result, in just three years, we reduced the hunting of manta rays by 97%. Wow. In three years, wow. over 400 years that we were working against. I hadn't... Uh, I hadn't Either the figure wasn't in the film or I had, I'd forgotten the figure. 97% is incredible. Yeah, it wasn't in the film because it was in process when the film was made. Right. And so when people tell me it's impossible and you can't do it and, and how do you change people and blah, 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 I just look at them and I go, you know how many times we've said that? We said that with civil rights. We said that with, um, we said that with the rights for women to vote. We said that with slavery. We said that again and again and again. But the fact of the matter is we have made those changes and we can make those changes in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. Mm -hmm. And the reason I started with Lemacara was I said, instead of working around the fringes and saying, eventually we'll get to the hard spot, let's go to the one place where it's impossible. <clears throat> let's prove that in the face of that seemingly impossible odd, we're gonna turn this thing around and make change happen. Because if we can do it here, we can do it anywhere. Well, this is a little bit similar to the Ross Sea story, which is if you can create a create a marine protected reserve, the world's largest marine protected reserve in a place where you've got so many competing interests of different countries, then where else can you do that as well? Which I think is just, you know, that only happened a year or two ago. It's an incredible platform on which to build. It's such a, you know, as you've said, it's such a critical moment for our oceans yes. and it's only getting more critical as time goes on. 
Um, yeah, the Ross Sea is a great example because, you know, Lemaker is the microcosm and <clears throat> the Ross Sea is the macrocosm, right? Yeah. And whereas you have one community in a very specific lifestyle that they control and they do everything, the Ross Sea is an area that everybody wanted but nobody controlled. Yeah. So it's it's sort of antithesis of the issues, but again, you have to, you know, my partner John Weller was so instrumental in this, using art and storytelling to bring people, help bring people to feel a different way about a space, have a different view of it other than just as a commercially exploitable area, mm. but as a, as a heritage area, a place of natural value, far beyond its commercial value, and then getting nations that primarily arm wrestle for commercial interests to finally come together and do the right thing. And we've done it at CITES for Mantas, we've done it at, uh, for the Ross Sea, and we've done it in some of the hardest communities. And so when people tell me why bother, well, I've worked in some of the hardest areas and some of the hardest levels, and we've had success. And is it enough? No, not nearly enough. But does it prove that change is possible and that it can happen quickly? Yes. Mm. And what we need now is we need legions of people that have that same belief system to rise up and create a, a new version, they call them the Rainbow Warriors, or whatever you want to call it, that don't believe in violence, but believe in compassion and empathy, mm. and that believe that all beings on this planet have a rightful place and an important place, and that their only value is not commercial, that they have a, a, an inextricable value unto their own selves, just their mere existence here, and that by supporting all these beings and supporting life on Earth, in the end, we're supporting ourselves. Yeah. Sean, so I know, so I know you've got um, you've got a lot of other commitments in a short few days back in the U.S. So I've got one more question about your uh, your underwater experiences, and then I've got a few quick uh, rapid fire questions to wrap up with, if that's all right. Not a worry. Perfect. So the the last question about your underwater experiences was, um, and I could have picked so many. There were so many moments in the videos of you that I was watching where you know, where you were expressing emotion or where you were even welling up and I was welling up and they were just incredible stories and moments. So there were there were tons that I could have picked on, but you said that one of the most intimate experiences you had was a female humpback whale who presented her newborn calf to you. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was um, that was a very special moment for me. Uh, I'll give you a little background. So if you think about what we did to whales, for hundreds of hundreds of years, we commercially exploited them, you know, initially starting out of, you know, you had Martha's Vineyard and you had, you know, out of England, you had whaling vessels plying the oceans. And then in the early 1900s, that hit an all height where literally steel-based vessels were going out and, you know, charged harpoons. And suddenly we had all the nations of the maritime nations of the world on a, a free-for-all, and we drove most large whale species literally to the brink of extinction. Blue whales were down to maybe 2 or 1% of their pre-hunting numbers, and same with humpback whales. And so <clears throat> that continued all the way up <clears throat> until 1986, where you finally had the moratorium on commercial whaling. And it was at the tipping point. If that had not come in when it did, <clears throat> many of the whale species as we know today would be almost or actually extinct. Mm. And so it happened at such an important time. Now, if you think about the lifespan of these animals, they live 50, 60, 100, 150 years. You have bowhead whales living 250, 300 years, right? 
So yeah. a lot of the mature animals that are alive today were alive during the peak of commercial whaling. So I, I head to Tonga to document and spend, you know, and spend time with female uh, humpback whales and their newborn calves. And I'm looking, you know, I drop in the water and I find this, this mother and her calf. And, you know, at first she was somewhat evasive, so I just completely stayed off. And then ultimately she seemed to settle and she earned our trust. And so I remember sort of slowly approaching and, you know, she was a, a, a mature old mother and, and, you know, it kind of hit me right in that moment. Like she had probably witnessed her brothers, sisters, certainly her parents harpooned and dragged up and, and, and blood pouring forth as they fought for their lives onto one of these commercial whaling vessels. Mm. So her, her, these are highly intelligent, sentient beings. Her connections with humans was incredibly violent, probably during her formative years. Yeah. And now, you know, being pinged by sonar from, you know, naval vessels and all that, living in a very loud, plastic-choked oceans, the only interactions that she knew as from humans was us basically invading her habitat, polluting her habitat, deafening her world, and destroying and murdering her, her family. And you, you think about, if you ever get to spend time in the company of a humpback whale and its calf, you feel love on a scale you've never imagined. That baby whale to her is her entire world. She literally starves herself almost to death in a, the most protected place she can find as the baby feeds off of her milk and to the point where she literally loses, you know, I don't know how much weight, but thousands of pounds as she basically feeds this animal. And she, there's no food for up in these tropics. So it's a starvation period where she gives all of her body to this baby. And it's her most trusted, most special thing in the world. And so when you come into her world and she's even allowing you to spend time with that animal, that is a huge amount of trust that's being extended to you. And I've experienced some of that in the past and it was amazing. But in this case, I remember the baby was really reticent to come and approach me. And so I was actually swimming away because I didn't want to scare the baby. But despite my efforts to swim backwards, they were getting closer and closer. And I was like, I'm not drifting in. I can't figure out what's going on. And then finally it struck me that mommy was pushing her baby to me. And at that point, I sort of slowed up and eventually stopped. And, and I just remember this baby's sort of pushing against its mother's head. It's rubbing against her cheek, looking for safety. And mom is slowly but surely and reassuringly bringing her baby to me. And eventually the baby realizes there's nowhere to go. You're going to meet this human. And it was probably one of the first humans this baby had ever met. Yeah. And it finally let go of its mom. And I remember it kind of gave me this look. And then it swam right up to my lens and it stuck its eye literally within reaching distance of my camera. And I just remember looking this animal in the eye and it slowly drifted in. And then at that point, mom had said, you've done it. And it came back to mom and then they slowly drifted down into the depths. And I just remember when I was filming, I had the camera running, but it was, I didn't even know it really at that point. I just was tearing up in my mask and I was just so overcome with this beautiful connection, but also some, a little bit of sorrow for what we had done to the, her species and to her family. And just to know that there was that level of forgiveness and trust in a species that had been driven to extinction. And then to realize how little forgiveness and trust that we have in our lives in the face of much easier circumstances. It was such a powerful, profound lesson to me. And one of, there's so much learning that happened in that moment. It was, it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Okay. It was it was really really an incredible experience. Yeah. 
Okay, I've got I've got just three or four kind of rapid fire questions. They're short questions. If you want to take take a while to answer them, feel free to. But I've just got three or four okay. short questions left. So, the first one is: Who are some of the conservationists, or even just people, who've inspired you in what you're doing today? That's a great question, and, and you know it's hard when people ask you to list people when you you have um, such an amazing community of people that you work yeah. with. So, you know, I think, you know, I could list probably a, a dozen or two people who are daily inspiring me. You know, there's some folks that fall across my radar that I think the way they do it more than anything really matters to me. You have an example like Jane Goodall. And you have a person who literally has had to fight and witness the, the murdering of the, the, the chimpanzee communities that she so fell in love with. And she has such a gentle and loving spirit and her message is not one of war, but one of peace. And for me, that has always been so inspiring. Just to have somebody who's seen so much, has all the reasons in the world to be bitter and jaded, but she pours forth love, compassion, and empathy, and inspiration. And I think that is an incredible example to the world, and one that we should really, really consider in terms of our approach. We need to lay down our weapons, and then move forward with open hearts. And, and those are the people in my life that really inspire me. And I have communities of conservationists across the world from Indonesia and the United States and working in organizations and filmmakers like Luis Ahoyas that literally put everything aside to try to get that story out there. And so, you know, I, there's a list that I could really go through, but really, you know, I think just that one example speaks to the nature of the people that inspire my work. Mm, okay. Um, Almost flipping that question on its head, what book or books do you most often recommend or give as a gift to other people? Okay, so honestly, I don't give a lot of books. Okay. Um, not that I don't believe in them, but I don't. But um, uh, one book that I, re <laughs> I really believe in um, is Dr. Zeus, The Lorox. <laughs> Great book. <laughs> It's one of the most simple and most important conservation messages I've ever, I've ever, ever devised. And, you know, the message is very simple. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, things aren't going to get better. They're just not. And that's really the, the, the fundamentals for all of our work is that in, unless you care, nothing's going to change. And so I think I'm, I'm working sort of at the rudimentary level now of what drives human behavior. And I'm really trying to get people to care. Because if I can get them to care, the rest of it will follow. And there, you know, there's a you know long list of other books. If you want to learn about, if you want a true picture of the oceans, Colin Roberts, The Unnatural History of the Sea will blow your mind. It's a heavy read. Most people, you'll give it to them, they won't read it. And you know, a lot of books are like that. Mm -hmm. But start with Dr. Zeus. I think that's a really good place to open the conversation about conservation. <laughs> okay, good recommendation. I know that book. Um... Do you have any advice that you would give to young people looking to get into environmental activism or wildlife photography? Or is there any advice that's often given to them that you would suggest they, they should ignore? Yeah, you're going to get told. The first thing is when someone tells you how to do it, ignore that. Because usually it's, it's, it means there's going to be no new path for you to carve. And for me, I, I look for things that people said you can't. Find the place that you're passionate where someone says you can't do it. And those are the only things that are really worth doing in my mind. And really find your niche. And that means don't try to be something you aren't. Look within yourself first. Try to, if you don't know yourself, you're not going to really know what you really have to offer. 
And so spending the time to understand yourself and what you're passionate about and where you really bring value is such an important lesson. And a lot of people just try to fit into uh, into an industry or into a role, but they haven't done a personal assessment. And I was able to actually take a little time to go back and, and sort of retool and go back to my roots and say, where's my passion? Where's my skill set? And how do those two things come together? Mm-hmm. So really do that inventory, that soul searching. And then if you're passionate about something and you have the skills, nothing is going to get in your way. Nothing. The only thing that will get in your way is you. But if you fail to do that proper inventory, inevitably life will push you off that course because you're not on the right path anyways. Mm-hmm. Nice. And then finally, if you could put on a billboard that would reach millions of people either a quote from yourself or from someone else, what would it be? Well, there's two quotes that I use in my life that um, – I've tried to internalize and I I, I reflect on them almost every single day. And one of them um, is Mahatma Gandhi. uh, And that is be the change you wish to see in the world. We often point our fingers at all the problems and all the issues and everybody. And the fact of the matter is it starts with us. And if you can't be that change, how are you going to expect anyone else to be? So start with yourself, be that change, be honest, make those changes and then look to drive change in the others. And the other one, which is a, a reverend in Japan, Saizan Kawakami, and he said, better to light one candle and curse the darkness. And it's so important because I've been to the darkest places and there's so many reasons to believe we're screwed. And, and if you read the, the reports and you look at the studies, we are. But the truth of the matter is this. It's 100% certain we're going to lose it all if we do nothing. But there's some probability, I don't even know how small or large it is, that if we all act, that we can change in time and we can save it and we can make a better future. So the only rational behavior is to do that. And so instead of sitting there and being one of the the pessimistic naysayers that are cursing the darkness, light that candle because that candle inspires others. And eventually you have that stadium of candles and you have that entire room and now we have a whole different light in the world. So those are the two quotes in my life that really mean something important to me. Nice. Sean, is there anything that you'd like to say that hasn't come up or anything that I haven't asked you about that you wanted to cover? No, I think we've really done a brilliant job. I think this was a a wonderful discussion and I I think it hits to the heart of why we need to do what we do. Yeah. And I mean, I should just say again, if I didn't at the beginning, like I've spent the past few days diving into your, (laughs) diving into really kind of immersing myself in your in your videos and your photography and it is just so you know as someone who's had a passion for the environment since a very young age it's just so inspiring and reinvigorating to look at look at the work that you've done and the successes that you've helped to craft well thank you and i hope i hope my hope is that others continue to follow and then others i can follow and really that at one point, somewhere in the not-so-distant future, there's, there's a real sentiment that change is now underway in, in a serious manner and that we're all looking back and saying, wow, that was a really insane time. I'm so glad the light is now upon us. Mm. Okay, cool. Sean, thanks so much. That was, that was absolutely amazing. That was even better than I'd hoped. And I've just got two very quick questions. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org 
on Twitter at Wild Voices Proj, or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.